Hello and welcome to the Journey Church podcast, streaming live from Queens, New York. We're really glad that you decided to join us today. Whether you're a member, attend regularly, or this is your first time with us, we want to let you know we appreciate you. We hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, welcome to all of the One Prayer churches. I'm Mark Batterson. I serve as lead pastor of National Community Church in Washington, D.C. Thanks for letting me be a part of what God is doing in your church, and we're excited about this series. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 16. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Um, Let me reveal one of my idiosyncrasies. I just have this thing for nicknames. Um, I always have. I love nicknames, um, and I tend to nickname the people I like. And so if you don't have a nickname... I, I nickname my friends. Uh, there's a staff member who will remain nicknameless, um, but has at least two dozen nicknames. Um, uh, when, when Parker, our oldest, was born the first year, we were concerned that he wouldn't know his real name because I had so many nicknames for him. And, uh, and, and I had nicknames. Um, nicknames are interesting because I think they reveal kind of a dimension of your personality. And so I played basketball in college, and one of my nicknames was the Black Hole. Because my teammates knew if they passed the ball to me, they were never going to get it back. Um, I took that as a term of endearment. Um, and uh, now, now you may think, oh, that's just, you know, annoying. Um, but I think it's one of the things that makes me a little bit more like Jesus. Because did you notice that he nicknames like everybody all the time? Like James and John, sons of thunder. What an awesome nickname. And then you've got um, Peter, uh, the rock. What a cool, cool nickname. And so I I think that names are an incredibly significant thing. And and all of that is to say this. When you read the Bible, what you discover is that there are more than 400 names or nicknames for God. And I think each one reveals a unique dimension of who God is, a unique dimension of his kaleidoscopic personality. And we're going to look at one of those names, one of those dimensions. And it's the, the name of the incomparable. It's the word Paul uses in Ephesians 1 to describe God and his power. So let's dive in. Ephesians 1 verse 16. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his, here it is, incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is, the, is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. And just in case Paul missed something, um, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things, all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything, everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What an amazing passage, scripture. 
Um, do you think we're going to get through the whole scripture this weekend? Uh, no, neither do I. Um, we got a few people with a lot of faith, but here's what I want to do. I want to unpack um, what I think are some important pieces in this passage that, that I believe can change our lives. Most of us remember speeches or lectures or sermons because of what was said. Uh, not, not this one. This particular lecture was memorable because of where it was delivered. I was a freshman at the University of Chicago, and honestly, this was not the most exciting class I took. I spent most of the semester nodding my head, not in agreement with what my professor was saying, but in a colossal struggle to stay awake because it was the afternoon time slot when circadian rhythm dips. And I think at one of those moments as my head nodded, our professor revealed something that turned an ordinary lecture hall into hallowed scientific ground. He told us that just a few feet from our lecture hall was the infamous squash court where Enrico Fermi on December 2nd, 1942, unleashed the power of the atom by splitting it. Now, the technical term is nuclear fission. And the full impact of that discovery was felt on August 6, 1945, when the Enola Gay dropped the world's first atomic bomb over Hiroshima, Japan. It took 43 seconds for that bomb to fall 31,000 feet. It's 7,000 feet. A barometric switch triggered the first subatomic reaction, and in a matter of a few millionths of a second, there were 80 generations of doubling. The, the heat at the core of that bomb reached a temperature of several million degrees Celsius. The temperature at the core of the sun, when the bomb exploded, 8.16.02 local time, Four miles, four square miles of that city were completely devastated. Uh, 66,000 people lost their lives without even knowing what was coming as silent shockwaves outsped the speed of sound. Buildings were leveled six miles away. Glass was broken 12 miles away. And the energy uh, produced by that bomb, the glare from that blast would have been so, uh, was so powerful that it would have been visible from Jupiter, roughly 390 million miles away. Now, those statistics are staggering, but here is what is almost inconceivable. The energy produced by that bomb was the byproduct of a subatomic reaction that only used 1% of two pounds of uranium. One third of one ounce of uranium was sucked out of existence and it translated into an explosion 2,000 times more powerful than the most powerful bomb in the history of warfare. Now stick with me for a moment. You're going to have flashbacks to your physics class. It was more than a century ago that Albert Einstein published what may be the most recognizable equation in the realm of science. E equals mc squared. Energy equals mass 
multiplied by uh, the speed of light squared. Now, the speed of light squared is such a quantum, such a large number that really, in a simple translation, it simply means this. There is an awful lot of energy and a very small amount of matter. In fact, the amount of potential energy in every invisible atom is almost inconceivable. According to author and professor David Bodanis, one-fifth of one proton has enough potential energy to supply all the power needs of Berkeley, California. A proton is a subatomic particle, and in case you care, the mass of a proton is 1.67 times 10 to the negative 27 power kilograms. Or to put it in different terminology, there are more protons in just the dot of an eye than there are stars in the galaxy. Yet one-fifth of one proton can generate 200 million electron volts of energy. Now, Here's what I'm getting at. If the amount of energy in every subatomic particle is virtually inconceivable, then how can we begin to even comprehend the potential energy of an omnipotent creator who created all matter? And the truth is, we can't. And that is the point of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.18. He combines two Greek superlatives. Um, and, and he says, God's power is not just great. God's power is not just incomparable. He says, God's power is incomparably great. In other words, there is no comparison point and it, it, it strikes me that this is where I should stop preaching. Because if there is no comparison point, then how can we even begin to imagine of something for which there is no comparison? Let me see what I can do in 30 minutes. With 26 letters of the English alphabet. No eye has seen, no ears heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for us. But let me talk for a moment about what I think is one of the greatest spiritual challenges that we face. And it's this. We tend to think about God in human terms. And we do that because we're human. In the beginning, God created us in his image We've been creating God in our image ever since. Now, the term is anthropomorphism, and it's the attribution of human characteristics to God. Let me give you an example. We tend to think of God in four-dimensional terms because that's all we've ever known. Uh, we cannot conceive of anything beyond our four dimensions of space-time. And so what we do is we project our four space-time limitations on God. And what we end up with is a God who's a little bigger, a little better, a little stronger, and a little wiser than we are. 
we end up with a God who is a supersized version of ourselves. See, we tend to think of God's power as slightly more powerful than the most powerful thing we can imagine. We tend to think of God's grace as slightly more gracious than the most gracious thing that we can imagine. We tend to think of God's wisdom as slightly wiser than the wisest person we've ever known. I think what Paul is saying in this passage is no. (laughs) No. No, 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 no. Hold on. He's saying, listen, God is incomparably great. There is no comparison point. God is not a little bit bigger, a little bit better, a little bit stronger, a little bit wiser. He is so much more than that. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Southern California speaking at a conference and uh, happened to be near Seal Beach. And it was about 10 years ago that I first visited Seal Beach, close to Long Beach. And there was a little uh, uh, Mexican dive there called Taco Surf. And I thought, man, I haven't been there in a long time, and so I decided I want to go back and, and uh, get a bite to eat. And so I uh, ate dinner there, and then I was driving along uh, Pacific Coast Highway south towards Newport Beach uh, when I had a flashback. I hadn't thought about this in years, but when I was there 10 years ago, I was with uh, my two brothers-in-law, uh, Rob and Joel, and uh, now... Pastor Joel is our campus pastor at Boston, and you know, he's about my size, and, and my other brother-in-law, Rob, about my size, but a little bit bigger, I guess, super-sized version. Um, and so Rob's a big guy, and we decided that we were going to go boogie boarding, and, but the water was really cold, and so the pastor friend that we were hanging out with um, got us some wetsuits. Um, one minor detail, he borrowed them from uh, three junior high kids. And so we're, we're preparing to go boogie boarding, and I kid you not, it took me 10 minutes to get the wetsuit on. Now, part of that was that initially I put it on backwards. Um, but finally, Joel and I get our wetsuits on. I mean, it was like a, an awesome workout just getting those things on. Rob hadn't even gotten his arm in the sleeve. Rob has these meat hook hands that weren't fitting through the armhole. And so like, this is a little embarrassing. And I promise you, it's the only time that Joel and I have ever dressed Rob. But um, we're pulling um, this wetsuit, the sleeve. And finally, like three growing men, finally his fist gets through and and we get the wetsuit on and, um, but we can't zip it up. Like there is no, there is no way under heaven, on earth, that this Wesley's getting all the way. And so um, we just go out there and Rob's got like this V-neck and back. I mean, it was just, uh, now I don't know who that guy is. I've never seen him before in my life. Um, and, and so we finally, we get in there and then um, the first time in, I mean, you can imagine what happens. Rob's suit fills with water. Like, and you know, he's like a whale that goes down and, and, uh, I have rarely laughed that hard in my life. I mean, we're driving. I'm just having these flashbacks about, about that moment. Um, it was just, it was hilarious. And, and honestly, I'm a little afraid of the mental images that you have in your head right now, but um, you can picture it. Now, why, why would I give you a ridiculous mental picture like that? Here's why. Because that's exactly what we do to God. 
put a little junior high wetsuit on them. We bring God down to our level as if God can fit within the logical constraints of our left brain. And it's ridiculous. And it wasn't so sad and detrimental to our spiritual health. It might be funny. But it kills us. Um, listen to me. Here, here it is. Our biggest problem is our small view of God. Every other problem is a byproduct of that core problem. So you're telling me that my financial problem is not my financial problem, that that is my problem. Yep. Because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Wait, wait, wait. So you're saying that the anger issue, that's not my issue. That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, Because the truth is, your anger is evidence that you have an incomplete understanding and appropriation of God's love and forgiveness in your life. Because if you understood how big his love was, those issues would begin to go away. Um, wait, so you're saying that my incom- incurable condition is not my problem. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that the great physician is bigger than your incurable condition. And the truth is you might die but you will cross into another dimension when you cross that space-time continuum and you will enter into a realm where there is no more sorrow or crying or mourning or pain. There's no more death. And in eternity, it'll put all of our problems into perspective. I'm not trying to, you know, I know there's the place for mercy, but I'm trying to speak some perspective because my problem is perspective. My problem is that my problem seems so big to me and God seems so small in comparison to those problems. And so here's the question. Here's the question that will determine our spiritual destiny. How big is your God? Is is he bigger than your sin? Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Is he bigger than your addiction? Oh, but you don't know how long or how hard. Jesus said, I came to set the captive free. Uh, Is he bigger than whatever kind of physical problem you have? By his stripes, we are healed. Is God bigger than those things? I think the answer is an unequivocal yes. I think, I think, Most of us would agree that God is Savior, Deliverer, Healer, that He is those things. But it's just so much easier for us to believe God for the impersonal big stuff, like keeping the planets in orbit, than the little personal stuff, like my problem. What I'm saying is God is bigger than that A.W. Tozer, Oh, man, he said it best. He said a low view of God is the cause um, of a hundred lesser evils. That's so true. That's so good. He also said a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. Let's keep going. That power 
is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realm. This is an amazing thing. The same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. If we could just grasp that, what an awesome, awesome reality. And it says that he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now, I want to try something here. Let me ask you a question. When I ask you to think of a painting of Jesus, what comes to mind? Um, I wonder what images or sculptures or paintings or pieces of art come to mind when I ask that, that question. I'll give you a second to think about it. Um, for me, there are two pictures that are dominant in my mind for some reason. Um, one is a picture of Jesus um, with a lamb draped around his neck. Anybody else? That's a picture that popped into your mind. Um, the other one is a picture depicting Jesus standing outside a door poised to knock. And it's a depiction of Ephesians 3, or Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, um, I, I think that those are paintings that my grandparents had in their home. And so those were early images of Jesus in, in my mind. And my hunch is that all of us have their images, kind of a mental picture that comes to mind when, when we think about Jesus. My hunch is, is that for most people, the dominant image is an image of Christ on the cross. That, that image is the one, that, and, and that is the crux of our faith. That is where the love of God is, is painted blood red. And it's a sacred picture. But I want you to hear what I'm about to say because I, th I think this is huge. Jesus is not hanging on a cross. He's seated on a throne. But that's not an image that we see depicted very often. And because we don't have a mental image of him in that place of power and authority, I wonder if it just robs the victory from us before we even get started. I wonder if our greatest shortcoming is how much we underestimate the authority of Christ and the authority we have because we are in Christ. Listen, thank God for that picture of Christ on the cross. From, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., what had to be the longest day of his life, he suffered, he sacrificed, and he gave us a picture of what love is. He rose from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is who we're praying to. And that's what Paul's saying. Is he's saying, here is the picture I want to paint for you. And it's not good enough for us just to hear those words. Like my prayer is that spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened and that we would see the authority that he has and that we have because of who we are in him. Because that will change your life before the day is done. My prayer would be that some of us would bow the knee to Jesus Christ.
The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it'll happen either now or then. My prayer is that that would be a decision that you would make. And so that before the end of the day, somewhere, sometime, by a bed or, or some place, you know, at an altar, wherever, that you would bow the knee. And in that moment, what happens is you submit to your, your life to the one who has incomparably great power and it begins to work in your life. But it begins with that moment of submission, that moment of submitting our lives to Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I renewed a membership at our gym, and uh, I went in uh, and got a free training session because uh, I guess they do that if you're a new member. And so um, I decided to take advantage of it because I'm really trying to get in shape, and uh, and I want to find out what my body fat was, and, and I want to learn a couple of new exercises. Um, what was I thinking, by the way? <laughs> I think I regretted that decision. Um, and I wanted to pick up a few new exercises, but here's the thing. I was going in, and honestly, I was feeling pretty good. Like, I was feeling, I'm in pretty good shape. Like, I've been working out, and um, uh, I mean, if I'm just keeping it real, I was thinking internally that the trainer might actually be impressed. <laughs> I mean, that's embarrassing, but I'm just keeping it real. Um, that, you know, he might want to pick up a few tips from me, I don't know, during the training session. And so I get there, and... The Bible says, pride cometh before a fall. (laughs) He put me through a 20 minute, 20 minutes was all I could take. Um, He took me through a routine of resistance. I work out with weight. He took me through these resistance exercises, crunches, planks, lunges, pull-ups, gaiters. I had never even done any of these things. I am dying. I, four days later, I am still sore. There, I, I, have, I didn't even know I had some of these muscles. And, um, and, and it, was, it was just pathetic is really what it was. I couldn't even do all the reps that he asked me to do, and I almost threw up. And I don't know if it's okay for me to say that, but I mean, it was like I was right back in like two days getting ready for, you know, basketball season. But something happened. There was a little revelation that happened that was so interesting to me. He said, here's a problem with most people in the way that they exercise. He said, most people exercise the extremities. Biceps, right? The arms or the, you know. Um, he said, what you need to do is you need to work on the core. And, and so all of these exercises began to work on the core. He said, work on your core and strengthen the core and then go to your extremities. And, and, I just, I couldn't help but think to myself, I mean, everybody's seen that guy at the gym with like a huge upper body and flamingo legs, you know, (laughs) where like, dude, you're huge, but if I push you, I think you're falling over. Um, um, I just, I wonder if a lot of Christians are like that, like, you know, wow, great, great physique, but where's the core? What is the core? And I think what I'm trying to get at is the, the core, like, listen, you can know what your spiritual gifts are. You can be working on some of those spiritual disciplines. But what I'm saying is right at the core is this image of who God is. How big is he? 
Is he seated on the throne, not just of your life, but of the universe? Do you understand the authority that is yours in Christ? Because if you've got that, then you've got this amazing, strong core that changes everything, changes everything. I have a prayer, um, and I pray frequently. I say, Lord, I can't do this in my own strength and wisdom. And, you know, it's kind of a goofy prayer because he knows that. But it's my way of saying, Lord, I I can't do that. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. Um, I need your help. And uh, I think we've got to live our lives in a place where, where we have this fundamental understanding that without him, we can do nothing. And with him, we can do anything. And if we have those two things, I think it changes everything about our lives. Now, I'm going to try to wrap this up. I want, I want to touch about uh, one other piece of this passage, kind of unpack it a little bit, because Paul starts out just to reverse engineer. God got incomparably great power, working in the mighty strength. Man, he's seated far above every power, ruler, authority. Type. But how, how do we appropriate that to our lives? What difference does that make in our life? And Paul starts out this prayer, and what does he say? He prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He says, may, may the eyes of the heart be enlightened or open so that we can see. And, and what I want to say is this, is that you can't reason your way to God. You, it will not get you there. Um, reason is a wonderful thing, but reason will only take you as far as the hundred billion synapses that you have. And it won't take you any further. Um, I, I was reading an interesting article on uh, Yann Martel, the author of Life of, uh, of Pi. Um, and uh, he grew up an atheist, um, but during the process of writing that best-selling prize-winning book, um, he came to faith in, in God. And, and he said something interesting. It was so, it was so striking to me. Um, I'll just share this one little thing. He said, I was sick to death of being reasonable. <laughs> I, like at some point, it's just not enough. That's just not good enough. Um, reasonable is not enough. Wait, 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 wait. So, you know, because a lot of people say, well, well, that's my problem. Christianity isn't logical. Well, no, it's not logical, but it's not illogical. It's theological. It simply adds God into the equation that there is a God who is far beyond what we can imagine. And, and you cannot reason your way to God. It only comes by revelation. And so my prayer would be, that what my words can't accomplish in a sermon, the Holy Spirit would do for us as he begins to reveal to us this incomparably great power and begins to work in our life. And I can't even describe what's gonna happen or how that works. I, I can't. I mean, this week I was thinking about Thomas Aquinas, um, uh, one of the 33 doctors of the Catholic Church considered maybe one of the greatest philosophical, theological minds in the church ever, Period. Um, wrote this amazing um, Summa Theologica, um, an incredible volume. But, but it was very interesting to me because he, he was a huge proponent of natural theology or reason. And, and then um, on December 6, 1272, something happened. He had a vision um, and he quit writing. He never finished. Um, He said, all that I have written seems to me like straw compared to what has now been revealed to me. 
See, I want a moment like that where God reveals to me what is beyond my natural ability, what is beyond what I can imagine. Let me close with this. Um, He was born a slave. He was orphaned at a young age. Um, Honestly, uh, shouldn't amount to any. In fact, he was supposed to die before his 23rd birthday because of a medical condition. But he went on to be one of the most brilliant scientific minds of the last century. Uh, George Washington Carver didn't just survive. He just had an incredible impact and influence on on, uh, culture and especially on farming uh, in the South. Let me tell you a little bit about his journey. Um, He earned his master's degree in botany at Iowa State University, went on to teach at Tuskegee University for 47 years. Um, And he saw that um, the agricultural economy of the South was suffering, um, in part because of the boll weevil, and it was devastating crops, in part because of the fact that they were planting one crop over and over again, and it was depleting nutrients in the soil. Stick with me. Well, Carver introduced the concept of crop rotation, and they encouraged farmers to plant peanuts, and, and the harvest was amazing, but something happened. The farmers got ticked off at them because there was no market for peanuts. And so they ended up rotting in warehouses. And, and George Washington Carver um, decided to do what he always did, pray about it. Um, he got up at 4 a.m. most mornings, take a walk in the woods, and ask God to reveal the mysteries of nature. His favorite verse, Job 12, 7, ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air, and they will teach you or speak to the earth and it will teach you. Carver took that verse Literally. He asked the earth to reveal its secrets to him. Um, one of his favorite stories to tell was uh, in this moment when he was asking God to reveal the mystery uh, of the peanut. Um, here, here's his take on it. He said, um, why did you make the universe, Lord? The Lord said, ask for something more in pro- proportion to that little mind of yours. <laughs> uh, why did you make the earth, Lord? Your little mind still wants to know far too much. Ask for something more in proportion to that little mind of yours, replied God. Why did you make man? Lord, far too much, far too much. Ask again. Explain to me why you made plants, Lord. Your little mind still wants to know too much. The peanut, I asked meekly. The Lord said, yes, for your modest proportions, I will grant you the mystery of the peanut. Take it inside your laboratory, separate it into water, fats, oils, gums, resins, sugars, starches, and amino acids. Then recombine it under my three laws of compatibility, temperature, and pressure. Then you'll know why I made the peanut. Long story short, George Washington Carver found more than 300 uses for the peanut. Um, This is kind of cool. January 20th, 1921, he testified before the House Ways and Means Committee, representing the Peanut Growers Association. Um, The chairman, Joseph Ford of Michigan, told me at 10 minutes, an hour and 40 minutes later, The committee said that George Washington Carver could come back anytime he wanted to and talk for as long as he wanted to. They were amazed at the mysteries that he read. And and the uses, I don't have time to share them all, but just shaving cream, shampoo, soap, insecticide, axle grease, cosmetics, wood stains, fertilizer, Worcestershire shosh. (laughs) Um, He didn't invent peanut butter, but he popularized it. Um, Incredible. Incredible. Listen to what Carver said, and and I'm getting to the point here, okay? (laughs) 
To me, nature and its varied forms are little windows through which God permits me to commune with him and to see much of his glory by simply lifting the curtain and looking in. I love to think of nature as wireless telegraph stations through which God speaks to us every day, every hour, and every moment of our lives. That's, a, that's amazing, isn't it? Whoa, wait, wait, everything? Wireless telegraph stations that God is, that's Psalm 19. The heavens speak of his glory. There, there's no place where their speech is not heard. Now, what if we approached every situation, every person, everything, the way George Carver, George Washington Carver approached the peanut and asked the Lord for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to reveal to us the mysteries? That would be an amazing thing, wouldn't it? Um, he said one other thing, and I'll close with this. Anything will give up its secrets if you love it enough. Not only have I found that when I talk to the little flower or the little peanut, they will give up their secrets, but I've found that when I listen, silently commune with people, they give up their secrets also if you love them enough. If you love them enough. May God give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. May he enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we could see the incomparably great power that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Reveal to us in your way what you want us to know, what we need to know. God, help us live with a confidence that comes from the fact that we are in Christ that we serve the one who is seated on the throne. God, may we live in that power and in that authority and may it transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.